the nagging. Naturalist. It's the Nagging Naturalist podcast. Hey everyone, and welcome to a mini-sode for the tasseled wobegong. Mini-sodes like these are more casual and typically shorter than the main Animal of the Month episodes, and it's basically to have discussions around the highlighted species of the month, or in this case the tasseled wobegong, or other talks about conservation. Before we get into this episode, I did want to give a couple of quick updates, one of which is that by the time this episode comes out, we will be voting on the coloring pages from the contest. I'll be putting them up around noon, so that should be a couple hours after this episode goes live. And so basically, if you're on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, wherever I post these pictures, you can help vote for your favorite by simply liking them. And whoever has the most likes across the three social media platforms wins the pin and the sticker. Well, the top three will, because I have three pins and three stickers. So be sure to vote for your favorite one, and I'll be announcing those on Friday. Also, if you recall, in my Animal of the Month episode last week, I talked a little bit about the news going around about the Asian giant hornets. And I did want to give a little bit of an update on that, because that story is still developing a bit, unfortunately. As I mentioned before, the Asian giant hornets are found to be invading parts of Washington and British Columbia, specifically the northwestern parts of Washington, and in British Columbia, it's kind of around the Vancouver area. So it's a very small, select area that they've been seen in so far. And as stated, there was no real reason for anybody outside of those areas to panic about their presence. My main concern was about cicada killers, which are a large native wasp species across the U.S., but unfortunately, more than just the cicada killers are suffering from people's decisions right now. So recently, it was found that there are beekeepers in different parts of the country, particularly places like Kentucky and Tennessee, that have announced that they're putting out traps this month to try to capture potential predators that could attack their beehives. The problem is, is these are very indiscriminate traps. Anybody who's familiar with things like glue traps, they're awful. Even though you might use a glue trap to catch a mouse or cockroaches or something, you could end up catching any number of things, whether it's snakes and amphibians like frogs, or even like domestic cats and dogs can get glue traps stuck to them. They're a horrible thing and you shouldn't use them because they can be so harmful to more than the target species. Same with these traps that these beekeepers are using. These are indiscriminate traps. They're not One, they're not going to catch any Asian giant hornets because none have been seen where they're being put up. But also, these traps also do trap native bees, wasps, and hornets, which is a problem. I'm sure people listening to this podcast have heard about the decline in bee species in North America and around the world, really. Um, We're losing our native bees, like our carpenter bees, our mason bees, our bumblebees. There's also the honeybee, which is not native, but it is. it has become very important because these animals, the honeybees and all the native bees and wasps and hornets, this group of animals are important pollinators. While there are other types of pollinators, roughly 75% of U.S. agriculture, from fruits to nuts and vegetables, require the pollination of this group of insects that cover the bees, the hornets, and all that. So it's really important that we're not exacerbating that decline by putting out traps that can trap any of these animals. There is no specific trap for Asian giant hornets. So the best thing that we can do is report sightings of them so that 
officials can go out and try to find the nests and destroy the nests. Because there is hope that if the nests can be destroyed before summer ends, basically the queens of the nests don't really produce good fertile young until late in the summer and into the fall. The early part of the season, a lot of their eggs are sterile. So if they can find the nest where the queens are and eliminate them, they can help basically crush this invasive species before it gets off the ground, especially if they can get the queens. Because if the queens are destroyed and there's only workers left, there's a good chance that they'll just die off. So the most important thing we can do is not do harm to our native species, but to follow the guidance we've been given. And that is if you are in areas where these insects can potentially be found, you need to report them immediately. And you need to make sure that you don't try to kill or take care of them yourself for a lot of reasons. One, if you kill one of these, it can't be tracked back to its hive or its nest. And two, you run the risk of being stung, which, as has been stated, is incredibly painful and, depending on your health, can also be deadly. So it's really important that if you're in the parts of Washington and British Columbia that's affected, you follow these guidances. And if you're not in those areas, you do nothing. Nothing whatsoever. So just wanted to throw that out there. If you do know someone who is talking about putting out traps or doing things to help protect themselves from Asian giant hornets, and they're not from the northwestern part of Washington or Vancouver, Canada, then just direct them to some resources to let them know that there's nothing that they need to worry about. I'm referencing information that I read from an LA Times article uh, that quoted individuals from the U.S. Department of Agriculture and museum scientists from the Department of Entomology at USC. So there are resources and places where people can get good, valuable information about these animals that isn't trying to just, you know, add to the add fuel to the panic over the murder hornets. So please keep that in mind and help engage and educate people if they are taking drastic, unnecessary measures. Now, I don't want to vent for too long, so let's go ahead and jump into this episode. So, this episode is SCICOM, or Science Communication, and this is going to focus on talking about conservation messages for the Animal of the Month. But since I've never really delved too deeply into it, I am going to take a little bit of time to discuss Noki, which I've discussed briefly before in my first episode, uh, the Animal of the Month for the Hellbender. But let's let's get a little bit more background information so that people understand where I'm coming from and how to use this information going forward. SONOKI is the National Network for Ocean and Climate Change Interpretation. NOKI came about in order to help meet the need of educators on how to more effectively discuss climate change because it has been such a controversial topic and some people felt very uncomfortable with their level of understanding and knowledge in addressing this issue. So Noki teamed up with the Framework Institute who helped do a lot of the research and basically the goal was to find the most effective way to give messages that would lead to action. Framework Institute went out, they did interviews and they analyzed different ways that people took in information, what might have turned people off, what turned people on to the message, and they helped collaborate and create 
rules and fundamental ways of creating effective messages, and it is their strategic frame analysis. So basically what they do is with strategic framing, it's just a very careful way of putting together a message by following this formula. So first, of course, you have your topic. A lot of Noki training, most people are discussing species, you know, particular animals, or something about the environment in particular. So they have their subject, and now they need a value. So with the values, this is what helps kind of galvanize people and connect people to the message, because values are supposed to be universal. It's something that we as a society share. So within the U.S., protection really resonated with people. And to be fair, internationally, that's a very powerful value. People understand the need to protect things. You protect your health and physical well-being. You protect people you love and care about. You protect property. You protect your reputation. There's all kinds of things that people protect every day. And so protection is a very easy, universal value that most people understand and can connect with. The next most common one that people really resonated with was responsibility or responsible management. They kind of go hand in hand. And I believe the third runner up was interconnectedness. For the most part, protection tends to be the most commonly used value. I use it a lot too, but I will admit if I'm talking to people from a more economic standpoint, I tend to use responsibility and responsible management because for those of us who protect the environment for the sake of the environment, we don't really concern ourselves with whether or not there's financial issues very often. But it is something that we should consider because there are some people who that is their main concern is, and it's not necessarily just a country's economy. Sometimes it's their personal economy. How does it impact them? And will conservation impact them negatively? They're worried about those things. And it's understandable. Some people grew up and were led to believe certain things about conservation and and environmental protection that would suggest that by doing it, it would cause financial ruin. That was a really common myth that was perpetuated very early on in the environmental movement because people wanted to believe that the cheaper, easier, quicker way to make a buck was the best way to do things. And so they really channeled that. And of course, nowadays we realize that spending a little extra money for durability, reusability, and sustainability saves money and protects the economy more in the long run, but there's still that pervasive myth of being sustainable and being environmentally conscious is going to lead to financial ruin. And so that's something we've been working against for years, and using a value like responsible management helps us kind of combat that Then you also have the explanatory chain. That's another part of the message. And it's basically a clear and concise explanation of the cause and effect of the issue, but also it has to have a solution because basically the goal is for you to hand everything this person needs on a platter. You're going to present them with this, you know, species or this, you know, environmental model, whatever it is. We're just going to say an animal. Let's say Well, you know, let's say tasseled wobegong because that's what we're talking about. Hey, here's the tasseled wobegong. It is a shark that is affected by poorly managed fisheries. It's sometimes caught and it's not meant to be caught. 
and sharks die because of it. You don't just leave people off in a message like that. You have to give them a solution because then you just made a person feel bad about something that they can't control as far as they're concerned. But if you say, you know, tasseled wobegongs are these really cool sharks that help protect the health of our reef systems and it, they're very economically important, but they are affected by poorly managed fisheries. So if we support responsibly managed fisheries, such as, you know, XYZ, then we can help protect the Wobegong shark and it, and it can continue to protect our reefs and their economic value. Now, that's just a very brief example. I'll give a much more elaborate better said example later but that's kind of what the goal is is make sure that you're explaining things thoroughly and ending with the solution every time and then there's another really big part about the strategic framing and that's using metaphors so metaphors are meant to be these very simple but memorable comparisons that are supposed to help explain either these complex or abstract concepts that may be not very easy to grasp. A really common one you'll see in a lot of Noki explanations is when we talk about climate change and we talk about CO2 or carbon dioxide emissions. Very often when we talk about the buildup of CO2 in the atmosphere, we say that it is like a heat-trapping blanket that is causing our planet to warm. So the heat-trapping blanket is the metaphor. That's something we understand at least for people that experience the cold. If, if you live in Hawaii, maybe you don't worry about blankets. <laughs> it all depends. I mean, but for the most part, it's a metaphor the average person typically understands is the need to have a warm blanket when you're cold, but if it's hot and you have a hot blanket on, you know that's going to have negative consequences. My personal favorite that they have is they have a metaphor about the ocean as the world's heart because the ocean pumps currents of water around the world and that circulation really drives a lot of things about our climate, about the transference of nutrients and hot and cold uh, throughout our world. It's this big, elaborate, complex system that's absolutely incredible, much like our own hearts, which pump our blood throughout our body. And that blood transports a lot of things. It helps keep us warm. It can help keep us cool. It can transport nutrients and all kinds of things. And so if I damage my heart, my whole body suffers for it. If we damage the ocean, the heart of our planet, then we harm our entire planet. And so that's what these metaphors are meant to do is they're meant to have really help create a connectedness between these, these concepts that are generally either complex or abstract and make it something that people can understand and relate to. And we want to make sure it's always in a way that while it can help simplify it and make it easy to understand, you don't necessarily want it to be so simple and overgeneralized that it becomes a false statement. The use of metaphors has to be very carefully crafted and created. Noki has a set of metaphors that they commonly use, and you can find it on their website. But if you decide to use your own metaphors in your own science communication, then you have to make sure that the impression you're giving people with your metaphors is never going to lead to people coming to the wrong conclusion about the information you're given. So it's something to consider. 
feel free to use Noki's resources if you are somebody who's discussing things like climate change because a lot of their stuff is tried and true. They've been using it for years. People in hundreds of zoos, aquariums, museums, and parks have used the Noki method to convey information. And so as they get more feedback about their program, they're creating more content and figuring out better ways to use it and helping people just keep making better messages. It's really amazing. It's a great, great organization. And if you've never checked out Noki and the work they do, they are fantastic. And I love them so much. No biases, obviously. (laughs) So backtracking a little bit to the explanatory chain, there are some elements to that chain So there is the initial factor. So what is the original cause of the problem? So in the case of the tasseled wobegong, it is, as I said, poorly managed fisheries. Then there's the mediating factors, which is what is set in motion by the initial factor. And it's going to be the decline of wobegong sharks. And then the final consequence is what are the effects? It damages the health of the reefs. And it impacts the economy because not only are the reefs unhealthy, but wobegongs are something that people pursue. I mentioned in the Animal of the Month episode last week that people spend money for shark-specific encounters when they visit some reef systems. So the loss of the wobegong hurts the reef that people are visiting, and it also hurts their chances of seeing the wobegong. The effect is is that it ha- it's economically damaging because in this particular case, we are focusing on the economy. It's also environmentally damaging, but that's not our focus. And that is kind of a key thing, too, is to remember to keep your message very focused. If you try to put too much into it, you can dilute your message and make it less effective. Like one thing we were always taught was to never mix and match different values in the same message. If you use protection, use protection. If you use responsibility or responsible management, use them. Don't use both even though it seems tempting. There are other things to keep in mind as well that Noki really focuses on. One really big one is, even though it's a popular thing to do, is not to use crisis tones. So very often when people are talking about climate change, there's a crisis tone, like the world's ending, we need to hurry up and do this or else we're all going to die. It's very off-putting for a lot of people. Many of the people who are galvanized by the crisis tone, are people who already support the cause. So all you're doing is exciting people who already support you. For those of us in science communication, we're not necessarily trying to be cheerleaders for people who are already on our team all the time. A really big part of our job is bringing those who are on the fence or on the other side of the fence over to our side. So especially when it comes to climate change, which is a really big issue affecting all people and all creatures on this planet, it's very important that we get more people on board with combating climate change. And it's great that there are people who understand that it's happening and it's important to combat and they are working to change their lives to reflect their belief that climate change needs to be slowed down or stopped. We need more people on our team. And I get it. It will never be like an absolute 100%. There's always going to be people who either deny it, or don't care. But we really need to make sure that we are bringing as many people on board for this as possible because the more people that are working towards it, the more quickly we can effectively slow or cease the effects of it. So like I said, 
we don't necessarily want to be just cheerleaders. We want to make sure that the biggest part of our job is bringing those people on board who weren't already on board. And the reason why the crisis tone doesn't work is a very simple concept that I think some people might understand, because this was something that my mentor asked me at the Monterey Bay Aquarium when she was first teaching us about Noki and why the crisis tone is a problem. And that's if people remember the Sarah McLaughlin commercials for the SPCA and that incredibly sad commercial where it would play Arms of the Angel to all of these sad, shaking dogs in kennels. She asked us, how many of you, when that comes on, change the channel immediately? Like, you do not watch the commercial. Almost all of us did. (laughs) We raised our hands. We were like, we all do it. And it's not because we don't care about that issue, but it's because that commercial uses that crisis tone and it makes people feel so helpless. Because yes, they did have their nice little call to action about donating, but not everybody can afford to donate or adopt. And so there's very limited things people can do to help dogs in that situation. So it's not really an effective way to get a message across. And so it's really important that we not create panic because I get it. As somebody who has done science communication and discussed climate change, I completely understand the difficulty sometimes that people have with feeling very passionate about it and really trying to drive home the message with people. But it's really important for those of us who understand and know a lot about climate change to understand that not everybody's on the same level of understanding as us. And so they don't necessarily understand our urgency. Or if we do push the urgency too hard, we can push them into feeling helpless, like nothing matters, that whatever they do, it's never going to be enough. And that causes people to shut down and not do anything. So it's not effective in gaining action from people. I get it. Some people just feel very strongly about it and they use that crisis tone and they feel like it's effective and I can understand why they feel that way. But the statistics don't lie. People in general, the populace as a whole, does not respond very well to it. And so if you're trying to get more people on board then you have to change your tone. Anyway, I don't want to dwell on that too much. So another thing is the we, not me language. So it's really important that when you're talking to somebody about an issue, that you don't say things like you directing it at them as if it's all their fault, or say me as in you take it all on yourself. It is a we thing. And the reason why it's important to do we is because it's it's accountability. We as a society have caused a lot of this damage. Now, don't get me wrong, there are some individuals who should shoulder more blame than others on a systemic level because this is something that was really kind of cultivated in our society. However, when you're giving short, brief messages, you don't really have time to go into those kinds of things. And I wish I could spend a few hours just talking about the issues around systemic injustices that have led to the current climate crisis. but. I'm not going to. I'm going to stay on task and just say that make sure that you use language that encompasses everyone so that no one person feels called out. Always think collectively and in civic terms throughout your messaging. Do try to avoid using critterbait. 
Now, critter bait is something we discussed because it's really easy for people to use cute or iconic animals. So pandas, elephants, giraffes, lions, wolves, sea otters, like all these animals that people love for whatever reason. You don't want to use them as bait for action because you create expectations from the people who are receiving the message and it doesn't really build into what you're trying to get them to do. If the animal is the focus of your conservation message, that's fine. But don't use an animal like a gimmick to draw attention because it's deceiving and it's distracting and it's not very effective. Try to avoid using breaking news. You know, things that are arising quickly and are still developing especially. And focus more on things that are long term. So sometimes when we talk about climate change... It feels like there's always some breaking news that is coming out about the climate and how the world's being affected by it. But it's really important that we don't focus on these things because the science does change for certain things as we gain more knowledge. But there are certain models that are concrete and they have longevity. So in general, the building up of CO2 in the atmosphere is a guarantee. It's absolutely happening, and it's going to have devastating consequences for our planet, period. How quickly certain things happen or how models are changing to predict it don't matter. The fact is, is it is happening, and we need to combat it now. And changes in models and how sooner or later it might happen doesn't affect the action because the action still needs to happen. The prevention of more CO2 going into the atmosphere at an excessive level needs to stop. It's that simple. One of the things we do try to avoid is the do one thing action. So this was really popular when I was a kid growing up. It was very common. Like people were like, oh, you recycled, you saved the planet. Oh, you changed your light bulbs to energy saving light bulbs. You're saving the planet. It's like you just do that one task and boom, you're done. That's not true. It's not even remotely true. Anybody who sits down and thinks about it knows it's not true. There is nothing wrong with praising individual action. If somebody comes up to you and tells you that they just bought their first reusable water bottle so that they don't have to buy single-use plastic water bottles when they go to the gym or on a trip, that's great. Let them know that that's great. It's perfectly fine to praise that. Then take it to the next level. When they talk about how awesome that is and you tell them that they're fantastic for doing it, bring up another challenge, basically. If they're saying, I just bought my first reusable water bottle, be like, if you know that they drink um, a cup of coffee every morning from a restaurant of some kind, Starbucks, Dunkin' Donuts, wherever, ask them, do you have a reusable coffee mug for your coffee so that you don't have to get throwaway cups anymore? You can kind of build off of that, or you can build into community actions. If they're concerned about less plastic, ask them if they want to participate in a coastal cleanup and pick up trash in some of their local parks and waterways, which is really important. Ask them if they plan on voting for, you know, the upcoming plastic or styrofoam ban that might be happening in your city or state or county, wherever it is. Those kinds of things help build people into more actions. You don't want people to do one thing and then stop thinking that they've done their good deed for life for the environment. It's really misleading, and a lot of people did that for a long time. It's really important that we remind people that it's wonderful when they change for the better, but we can always do more. 
And it's not as bad as people think. Some people think that living sustainably is very difficult. But if you take it one step at a time, you can build up these habits. And it's not so bad. I've been doing it for years. I've been slowly working my way towards a more sustainable lifestyle. And it's happening in small steps and stages all the time. But I work it into my schedule at my pace whenever I can. So those are some of the basics of just building your message. So let's actually talk about building a message now, because I certainly don't want to spend this entire time just talking about Noki. So let's make our conservation message for a tasseled wobegong. Now, last time for the Hellbender, I used protection and I used their environmental value. This time I'm going to focus more on the economic value of the tasseled wobegongs, and I'm going to focus on responsible management. So first we want to introduce our species, and a really simple sentence just to get it started is, tasseled wobegongs are tropical reef-dwelling sharks with well-adapted camouflage to help them blend into the reef that makes them unique and attracted to tourists. Next, we want to talk about some economic value. Every year, thousands of tourists travel to tropical reefs around the world, and millions of dollars are spent on shark-specific encounters. Then you, of course, want to introduce the issue. However, tasseled wobegongs and other reef-dwelling sharks are threatened by poorly managed fisheries that either catch sharks on accident and discard them, or collect an unsustainable amount of sharks causing their numbers to decline. Now that we've introduced the issue, let's look at the solution. If we support responsibly managed fisheries that use shark-friendly fishing techniques to avoid bycatch and that follow catch limits on how many sharks can be collected within an area, we can protect the economic value of sharks in both the tourism and food industries. And we'll take this one step further to give them a very specific resource. The Monterey Bay Aquarium's Seafood Watch Program is one resource that we can use to make better decisions and support fisheries that are responsible and well-managed to avoid damaging shark populations. Now, you may notice that I focused on sharks as a whole, and that's for two reasons. One, because the tasseled wobegong is least concerned. It's not really facing an abnormally large decline the way other wobegongs and other sharks are. So I did keep it a little bit broad. But two, also because if I'm talking to somebody in the U.S., in general, we're not going to find wobegong on our menu here. That's really an Australian thing. And if you're in Australia, of course, you don't necessarily have to use Monterey's Seafood Watch. You can use the Australian equivalent of whatever they have for sustainable seafood programs. So I focus on Seafood Watch because it's something that's a little bit more accessible to people in the U.S. So let's put this whole message together and see how it comes out. Tasseled wobegongs are tropical reef-dwelling sharks with well-adapted camouflage to help them blend into the reef that makes them unique and attractive to tourists. Every year, thousands of tourists travel to tropical reefs around the world, and millions of dollars are spent on shark-specific encounters. However, tasseled wobegongs and other reef-dwelling sharks are threatened by poorly managed fisheries that either catch the sharks on accident and discard them, or collect an unsustainable amount of sharks, causing their numbers to decline. If we support responsibly managed fisheries that use shark-friendly fishing techniques to avoid bycatch 
and that follow catch limits on how many sharks can be collected within an area, we can protect the economic value of sharks in both the tourism and food industries. The Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch Program is one resource we can use to make better decisions and support fisheries that are responsible and well-managed to avoid damaging shark populations. And there's our conservation message. Now, it may not be a perfect message. I will admit, I still work to make my messages better. Even after years of doing it, I still want to try to make a better, more effective message. But this is a way that you can look at how to build an effective conservation message to help call people to action to do more to help animals or protect the environment, whatever your goal is. So thanks for listening in on this week's mini-sode. Hopefully that was informative, and I'm sorry this was a little bit long, but now that I've discussed a little bit more about Noki going forward, when I discuss conservation messages, I can probably keep it a little bit more concise now and maybe make more than one message as an example. Don't forget to look out tomorrow on some of those Hellbender pictures to vote on. You can choose your favorite and help somebody win a Hellbender pin and sticker. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to me. My email is thenaturalist at thenaggingnaturalist.com. And my website is thenaggingnaturalist.com. And you can find me on social media. I am The Nagging Naturalist on Facebook and Instagram, as well as on Twitter under the handle at nag underscore naturalist. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you all have a wonderful week. Hey, y'all. Time for another outtake segment because me. And people are setting out traps for the Asian giant hormit. 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 Hornet, Kristen. It's a hornet. And I knew. I. I. Pfft, I use the nyoki. 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 Then there are elements of the explanatory. I, I said it right. Why why did I mess up? I said it right. Why? Tesled Wobegon what Tesled Tesled? What's a Tessel? Tesled Wobegongs and reef dwelling sharks are threatened by poorly managed fisheries and <laughs> Slow down, Kristen, it's not a fishery. It's a fishery. Fish. They catch fish, not fish. The Monterey Bay Aquarium. Monterey, Monterey Bay Aquarium. Ugh. And just skip syllables, Kristen. It's all the same.